crowded. Uh, we are going to begin a three-week Christmas series today entitled Glorious Day. That's why we sang the song earlier. Um, and as we look at the Christmas story, one of the uh, repeating themes that you see are, are, are songs, worship songs, as God is revealing himself to us through this story. We see over and over through the Christmas story the important things to God, things that matter to him. Um, he chooses young peasants from the little village of Nazareth to be the parents. He makes sure that there's no place for them to stay in Bethlehem so that they would end up in the humblest of places for the birth, this, this stable. The first announcement of the birth is by a chorus of angels given to who? <laughs> the poorest of the poor, shepherds. The advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is really God pulling back the curtain so we can see what matters to Him, see His heart, His love, this universal invitation, this accessibility to all men to come to Him. He gives us the invitation to see the world through His eyes. He's revealing His glory and when God's glory is revealed, there's really only one response that we have, and it's worship. It's to proclaim that there's a glorious day. We can't pay Him back, can we? We can't owe Him one. His mercy is so overwhelming that we, the undeserving, have received this gift of life and... Uh, there's no way we could be flippant about it or casual about it. It's, it's just a falling on our faces before Him and thanking Him and giving Him glory. And that's what we see in this first scene that we're going to look at today is Mary's response. This, this response of Mary to being the chosen one to be the mother of the Messiah. She's already had her encounter with the angel and... Uh, who told her that God has selected you, Mary. It's your destiny. She had already asked the innocent question of, uh, how can I become pregnant when I'm a virgin? And the angel had confirmed that the Holy Spirit would come upon you, thus uniting together God and man and the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And she's had time to process all of that. I'm, I'm sure not fully. Process this information that, that me, this inconspicuous peasant young girl from Nazareth, would become this chosen one of God. That I would play this kind of role in the history of mankind. I mean, can you even imagine being Mary? Well, I sure can't. <laughs> This passage in Luke, the first chapter, is known as the Magnificat. It's a song that magnifies God. It's, um, it's been set to music by most all of the great composers. Composers like Bach and Vivaldi and Mozart and Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky and Schubert and Rachmaninoff. And my favorite is the, the modern setting of the Magnificat by John Rutter. I know you'd like to hear a bit of it, wouldn't you? Let's class up the joint a little bit, right? 
Let's listen to it. Just a minute of it. How can you not like that, right? That was Luke 1, 46 and 47 in Latin. And I want to read it. Luke 1, 46 through 53. I'm going to read most of the, of the uh, prayer, the song of Mary. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For before, for, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. I think about her age and I think quite insightful for a young, probably teenager. E. Stanley Jones says that the magnificent, The Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. This is not, as you can tell, just a grateful peasant girl quietly singing her praise to God. This is God's Spirit speaking through her to the world about the intentions of the Messiah. The world system where the rich and the powerful rule was... um, was being exposed to be inferior to God's ways. And uh, he, Jesus, the Messiah, has come to show exactly how the kingdom of God operates. You know, it's funny how certain things stick with you through the years. But I remember several of the books that I used to read to my kids when they were little. You remember those? I mean, some of those titles and uh, one such book uh, that we read over and over and over, it seemed like, was a book called Bert and Ernie's Different Day. You ever heard of that book? You ought to get it. The book goes through everyday situations and everything is opposite. They greet each other with goodbye and tell each other hello when they leave. They wear their clothes backwards, their shoes on the wrong feet. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed through every page as it came up with the most opposite of what was normal. 
And I've often, I don't know why, maybe it's just a weird mind that I have, but I've often thought of that book in relationship to the kingdom of God. (laughs) It's so opposite what we expect. The world says, hoard your money. God says what? Give it. The world says, look after, increase your power, chase after it. God says, serve. The world says, you are what you accomplish, and that's important. And God says, who you are is what's important. You look at Mary's song here, and it illustrates this, and uh, she's thinking about these truths about the kingdom of God. Her her heart is exploding with rejoicing and, uh, and praise and exaltation of how marvelous are the things of God, the ways of God. And we're going to look at some of these, uh, what I would call revolutionary truths, that when the kingdom of God comes to bear on the kingdoms of this world. One of the first revolutionary truths from the song is that God chooses those the world thinks are weak. Do you agree with that? God chooses those the world thinks are weak. I mean, what greater example than Mary herself? 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. This is Paul talking to the church. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. I don't know, have you, ever, have you ever looked at all the powerful, successful, wealthy people and felt like you just had this great lack in your life? <laughs> it's easy to start thinking the way the world thinks. In this passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, it's, it's saying to the church, there, there's not a whole lot, I don't know how to take this, there's a whole, not a whole lot of wise, <laughs> mighty, noble according to the flesh, or the way the world evaluates things, but it says that God has chosen, intentionally hand-picked the foolish things. I think he's talking about you and I. (laughs) He has chosen to raise up ordinary, ordinary people with no, what the world would call these wonderful qualifications, the Marys and the Josephs of the world. He chose Moses, an exiled murderer who stuttered. God says, now there's a leader. God looked at giant Goliath hurling all those threats at his people and thought, I have the perfect person. A teenage shepherd Who plays a harp? Jesus is looking over the crop of potential disciples, and he chooses fishermen, a tax collector, no doubt. (laughs) 
He chooses peasants. Nobody that had influence in the community. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, God was looking for that great apostle to plant churches throughout Asia and write most of the New Testament. So the obvious pick, right, is the Pharisee Paul who is currently killing Christians. And God says, there's my man. Mary would not have been the world's choice to be the mother of the Messiah. But that's the point. She was God's choice. I think about this, and I think, uh, you know, you may have a God-inspired dream in your heart, but you don't follow up with it because you think you're unqualified. Ever been there? Understand me when I say this. You are unqualified. And that's the good news. If God calls you to something, He is not banking on your skill, wealth, talent, community influence to pull it off. He knows you're unqualified according to the world, and so that's what makes you the perfect candidate. God chooses the weak. Sometimes the foolish things, as he said. Now I want to tell you, uh, the flip side of that can also be a problem. Uh, sometimes we have these inferiority complexes, and we think, I can never do that, God can never use me, but uh, he calls me anyway. But we can also have superiority complexes, can't we? You're looking at me like, not me. God may uh, lead you into something that you think you're pretty good at, and... Uh, you feel like, I got this one, God, thanks. I read in a book this past week this statement, uh, one of the biggest obstacles to the power of God at work through you is your own talent and ability. Woo. I remember two guys that I went to college with who are a great example of this. One guy had all the talent in the world, plus he was good looking. Whoa. He could sing. He was athletic. He was every girl's dream date. We called him back then the big, what, man on campus. There was this other guy I knew that was absolutely none of that. I mean, ugly. And they both chose the same profession, pastoring. And the good-looking guy with all the talent believed he could walk into a small church and within a year this was going to become a mega church because of his very presence. The weak guy was totally dependent on God for everything. I've watched these two men through the years. How do you think it turned out? One struggled throughout his career, and the other became a megachurch pastor. I don't think I have to tell you which one was which.
Mary sings in verse 51 that God has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts and attitudes of their heart. The point is this, God weakens those that think they're strong. This is really a spiritual revolution. It's the humble that are exalted. It's the proud that are brought low. The word scattered here means to rout or disperse or defeat. God wins in the end, and Mary knew that. She knew that there were those who thought they were powerful, who thought they were in control of the world, and yet she knew from the message of the angel through the work of the Holy Spirit in her life that this baby in her womb was going to upset all of the worldly powers. He was going to dismantle and reveal and disperse the proud. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe it's just me, but I see a lot of pride exhibited in the leadership of our society today. What do you think? I mean, I see people who think they are better than other people. They get to play by a different set of rules. They're above the law. They want to control everything about our lives. In some ways, it's like the Roman rule during Mary's time, and they lord it over their subjects. I mean, how many times have we seen those who thought they were invincible brought down by their own arrogance? As you read the song of Mary, you see that there is this underlying assurance, this quiet assurance that she is just completely convinced that God overwhelms the enemy. Her trust is in him and, uh, and what he can do, what he will do, and what the prophecies have said about this baby in her womb. And I, I get i got to tell you that sometimes if we're not careful, folks, uh, we can begin to look more like the people of the world than the people of God. I, I find myself sometimes being incensed at what I see on the news. Right? Injustice and uh, persecution and double standards and... Uh, And it's so easy to get ahead of, of God and say, God, I'm going to go ahead and lead. I want you to support my leadership. <laughs> Rather than, God, I'm going to pray and I'm going to walk through the doors that you open when you open them. And sometimes I think we get more agitated than assured. More angry than, than just this quiet confidence. And much more restless than content. 
I just think we never, never should forget that we have this great hope, just as Mary is expressing this hope. Her, her circumstances are still very meager, and she's got a difficult road ahead of her, but she has this undying focus upon hope. Verse 52, Mary sings, God has brought down rulers from their thrones, has exalted those who were humble. Political revolution, if you will. God overrides those that think they're in charge. How many leaders in the world today think they're really in charge? You know, the word politics. Now, sometimes when a preacher says that standing here, the whole place goes, where's it going? You know, the word politics simply means the rule of citizens. Today it has uh, come to describe polarization of parties and struggles for power. And, uh, but the term is really a very benign term in its meaning. It's just how citizens are governed. So this political revolution that Mary is uh, singing about is this Messiah Jesus is going to come and demonstrate... The ways of the prevailing kingdom, God's kingdom, where love wins over hate. A God's kingdom where mercy is stronger than judgment, where humility is actually more powerful than arrogance, where integrity defeats cheating. Where submission to God is more valued than human power. And I don't have to tell you, if you're a student of history, history is borne out that societies who govern according to these kinds of principles, they really are ultimately stronger, more prosperous, more peaceful, even though it doesn't make sense sometimes. So, how do you think things are going in Washington, D.C. these days? In many ways, it's spiraling out of control, I would say. We have accusations and lying and cheating and hating and political forces trying to crush one another. And uh, even if it's illegal... Powerful people taking advantage, abusing others just because they think they can and get away with it. And uh, In the midst of all of that, I'm studying this passage about Mary. And, and she's, she's, she's not, I hope we understand the depth of what she's saying here, because she's not singing about this future hope that this Baby in her womb is going to topple the Roman Empire and it's going to set up the Jewish people as the reigning people. She's simply stating this is the reality of the way things are. And you can't act in opposition to the reality of the way God has established it and endure. And today we're reaping the results of forgetting God. And when that happens, things do begin to spiral out of control. 
Leaders do take advantage of others, and they're brought down. And uh, those that are lying and cheating and stealing, they, they're found out. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, in the midst of a culture that is spiraling, Oh, we should be driven to our knees and praying that the, that the light of Christ would shine bright in us, that there would be no compromise, that we would walk truthfully as people of grace, that we may be able to shine light into a, a darkness that is ever-increasing. That we live in the reality of what Mary's singing about here. Because if if... if if society is not getting its influence from the church, it's soon going to be in complete disarray. You know what it says in Colossians, and we say it often here, but it says that in Christ, all things hold together. I want you to think about that phrase just for a second. In Christ, all things hold together. So what's the implication if Christ is extracted. It's an unraveling, a disarray, a falling apart. In verse 53, Mary sings this. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. God dismisses the self-sufficient, feeds the desperate. I mean, I wrote that, and then I had to deal with that. You understand what I'm saying? Self-sufficiency. Isn't that our trademark as Americans? <laughs> Self-sufficiency. Do I, do, I, do, I, do I look inside and say, Dave, are you desperate? Hungry people are desperate. Do I wake up in the morning, am I desperate? Or do I have kind of an easy life and everything's kind of provided and everything's kind of cool and uh, if I have time to get around to God and kind of dealing with Him and communing with Him, great, but you know, I'm not all that needy today. Instead of thinking about self-sufficiency, I'm completely driven to this. I'm hungry for what only He can give. This is the essence of the gospel. This is why Messiah Jesus has come. You see, it's no longer about coming to God with all of my good works. Look, God, look at the righteousness that I've been able to accumulate to present to you. I'm rich in good works. I'm rich in my, my heritage. I'm rich as a Pharisee and... Uh, I get to lead the church and preach in the church and uh, have influence. And uh, He sends those away who are rich and have reason that they think they have to boast in their spiritualness. And yet to those who come with 
hands open and just needy and impoverished and hungry. Grace. There's a scene in John 8 that illustrates it so well. A woman caught in adultery and the Pharisees ready to throw stones at her. They're... Their good works of the law and their adherence to the law, which proves righteousness, is uh, demanding that she be stoned. Oh, and it's a prime opportunity to take down this new rabbi, Jesus, and uh, let's make him answer the question. Is he going to go along with the law or is he going to go against it? And you know the story. He tells them, whoever doesn't have any sin, go ahead and throw a stone. And it says, one by one, they began to disperse and scatter. We heard that earlier in the passage. He will scatter the proud. And Jesus tells the woman, he doesn't condemn, I don't condemn you. Sinner? Yeah, you're a sinner. Yeah, I don't condemn you. Your sin's killing you. Go and sin no more. The Pharisees, the rich in good works and self-sufficient, they're sent away empty-handed. And the needy woman, the woman who has nothing to offer but sin, is filled with the forgiveness of the Messiah. I don't have to tell you, living in a backwards kingdom can sometimes be difficult, right? I mean, the world screams at us to do things like stand up for yourself, don't let people off the hook, fight for your rights, demand justice. Right. And as we look at Christmas every year, this important message is that God governs differently. He calls us out of that self-sufficiency and into His sufficiency. Self-preservation. Come on away from that. I will be your security. Self-promotion. Come out of that. Come into my humility. And you see in the Christmas story and throughout the life of Jesus, the high and mighty who are brought down. And it's a peasant couple from a small town. It's lowly shepherds. It's wise men from some far off place. The main characters. Um. I just want to share with you, can I do that as I close today? Uh, it's been a tough week. You had a tough week? It's been a tough week around here. We've had a call after call after call of people that are just suffering through physical things and relational things and vocational things. And uh, I wanted to tell you, it's been an unusual week. In that regard.
I thought about that and thought about this message and uh, I thought about the people who are, are, are going through these, these things and uh, I know people that are needy. They just need God to do something. And I see this story, and I, I, I think my message to you who are going through trials and uh, doubts and fears and uncertainties is that God does His best work in the midst of our need. Amen. He does His best work in the midst of our desperation sometimes. When he becomes all that I have, I, I've, I've exhausted everything else. He's, he's, is when the glory of God begins to shine in the midst of the difficult situations. I don't know why... Uh, God wants me to say this, but somebody needs to hear this today. Quit trying to fix things. Quit trying. Throw yourself before Him hungering, desperate. He loves you. He loves you like a daughter. He loves you like a son. He hears you. He's, he's been calling. He's been waiting. I look at the life of Mary. She never got rich, did she? She was never powerful. She was not spared difficulties. She endured probably more grief than any of us ever will. And yet she rested her life in this undying love for the Father. And I have found in my own life there's no better place to be. Amen. There's no better place to be. I want you to pray with me. Father, in these moments, no doubt across this congregation are people who are uh, identified with a place of struggle. It, it, it may be a, a long season of it. It may be something that has just uh, blown up in the last week or two and uh, a situation with a parent or a situation with a child or an internal situation where it just seems like worry or fear or doubt is just such a struggle. And Father, I pray that as we have seen and heard and uh, read about the this faith of this young girl, Mary, and uh, 
the way your, your world operates, the way your system operates, the, the, the longing that you have to love us and the longing you have to hold us and the longing you have to secure us and, uh, and put our restlessness to peace. Father, I pray that we would find that place with you today. And a lot of it is coming to you with this, this, this neediness and this desperation. And it, it seems contrary to the way that we've been taught to pick up ourselves and make something of ourselves and uh, to come broken and uh, completely needy is that access point to the power of God. And I pray that we would see that, that we may enjoy the Father and what you have for us today. We thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.